Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I have sad news. I need to put Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot on hiatus for a while because I need to finish a couple of other projects before I have more time to spend on this show. But not to worry, the show will be back in a few months. I already have additional episodes recorded and edited and ready to go but you won't get to hear them until I'm able to uh, finish these other projects so that I have more time again to devote to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. The easiest way to be notified of when the show returns is, of course, to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes or via the RSS feed, which you can do from the links on commonsenseatheism.com. Anyway, today I interview artificial intelligence researcher Eliezer Yudkowsky. So that's sort of the, the problem, that you have to hit a very narrow target in mind design space in order to end up with a worthwhile future. And if you miss that target by even a little, the worthwhileness of the universe from our perspective drops off very rapidly. If you like the show and want it to continue, do me a favor and write a kind review on iTunes or send the link to a friend. And now, my interview with Eliezer Yudkowsky. Eliezer Yudkowsky is a research fellow at the Singularity Institute for Artificial Intelligence and a popular writer at the website Less Wrong, a community devoted to refining the art of human rationality. Eliezer, welcome to the show. Pleased to be here. Eliezer, you're perhaps best known for your extensive writing on how to improve human rationality, how not to fool ourselves, how to overcome cognitive biases, how to update our beliefs to match the evidence, and so on. And when people first discover your writing on Less Wrong or wherever, it can be intimidating because they think, you know, whoa, this guy is 10 levels ahead of me. I don't have time to figure all this stuff out. But of course, you didn't come out of your mother's womb quoting E.T. Jane's on probability theory. You got where you are today as a result of a journey, just like the rest of us. So I'd love to ask you about that journey. And I guess we could start at the beginning. You were raised Jewish, right? Well, that's what I used to think. And then at one point, I was watching a space shuttle launch on TV and getting tears in my eyes and realizing that I didn't really get tears in my eyes for anything Judaism-related. And that was when I realized that my childhood religion that I'd sort of grown away from over time, but that still had the power to bring tears to my eyes, wasn't Judaism so much as space travel. Interesting. Well, you certainly had a religious home that you were raised in, right? I did. I mean, I'm sure that there are other people who have had vastly more unpleasant religious upbringings, but nonetheless, I did not enjoy it. And how did you get from the way that your parents were raising you and the values that they gave you, whatever those were, to what you call on your website traditional rationality? So, first of all, my father was a physicist and my mother was a psychiatrist. They were what I believe is called modern Orthodox Jews, which you still follow all the silly rules, but you're also allowed to believe in science. So my father was a skeptic of the Martin Gardner sort, Hmm. never applied it to his religion, of course, but, you know, brought me up reading Martin Gardner, Hmm. big fan of James Randi and so on. I believe he was once on a radio show with James Randi once, in fact. So I was more or less brought up within sort of like the non-technical rationalist tradition. And of course, Hmm. uh, growing up in a household full of science fiction books, including Heinlein and Asimov and so on had some of the same effect, um, and reading Richard Feynman as a kid mm-hmm. had some of the same effect. Language and Thought and Action by F.I. Hayakawa, standard Richard Feynman and Martin Gardner books. So that's sort of um, what I was brought up in, actually, mm. is sort of the non-technical rationality tradition. Mm. And so what is it that characterizes what you call traditional rationality? I generally divide sort of three lines. There's Hollywood rationality, which is Spock, which is all wrong. Um, it's sort of, sort of like the, the public image of rationality, which is sort of unfeeling or clever verbal thinking or mm-hmm. putting lots of significant digits on things that don't need them. Mm-hmm. Then there's the sort of traditional art handed down from the ancient rationalists like Richard Feynman and so on. And then there's the kind of rational you get into once you start 
studying probability theory and decision theory and all the known biases from cognitive psychology and so on. Hmm. So traditional rationality is sort of the, you know, not being, it's sort of distinguished by not having been translated into probability theory and being passed down from supervisor to grad student and father to, uh, to son and so on. For example, like empiricism, you should do your experiments yourself, get your hands dirty, um, know how to do your own experiments. You know, not, not just empiricism in the sense of go out and look at things, but also the sort of homespun, do your own experiments, virtu- uh, vir- sense of virtue that comes along with it. Falsifiability, stick your neck out, make bold predictions that no one else is making that are surprising and that can easily be proven wrong. And that way, if you're right, it's impressive. And in order to make an impressive correct prediction, you've got to risk some stakes. You have an obligation to um, provide justification when you say something interesting. And, And all these other things that actually turn out to have much more precise incarnations in probability theory, like the notion of falsification, takes on a whole different meaning once you know about Bayes' theorem, about which I believe you've recently written on your blog. <laughs> well, or just copy and pasted what you already wrote about it, really. <laughs> well, you, you, you rewrote most of that, and that's actually like one of the web pages that I've had on my table to redo for quite a while, but haven't right. actually gotten around to doing yet. Well, so how did you get from traditional rationality, falsifiability, empiricism, that kind of thing, to this more precise type of rationality that takes some lessons from cognitive science and also probability theory and decision theory. How did that journey happen? The coolest way to put it would be that it started with a badly phrased math story problem that someone gave me. Hmm. And that story problem runs like this. You meet a mathematician on the street, and the mathematician is pushing along uh, two babies in a uh, in a carriage, which then they're so swaddled up that you can't tell what gender the babies are. And the mathematician says, you know, at least one of my children is a boy. What is the probability that they are both boys? Now, this, as it happens, is the incorrectly phrased form of the story problem. But the way it's supposed to work is that you ask the mathematician, is at least one of your children a boy? And if the mathematician says yes to that, then the probability that they're both boys is one-third. On the other hand, um, the person who told me the story actually botched it. They misphrased it. They had the mathematician spontaneously saying, at least one of my children is a boy. Hmm. And in that case, you might tend to presume that if one boy, one child was a boy and one child was a girl, there'd be a 50% probability of them saying at least one child is a boy or at least one child is a girl, in which case by Bayes' theorem, though I didn't know it was called that, the probability that they're both boys is one half. And I, and I answered that, and someone said, well, sure, that's the Bayesian answer, but, you know, I'm not a Bayesian. And I, I was, okay, so who are these Bayesian people who get the correct answer as opposed to the wrong answer you just gave me? <laughs> and I started looking it up. <laughs> And I was sort of aghast at the thought that there were such things as non-Bayesians, right. and, yet, and yet so it seemed to be somehow. <laughs> well, and on, your, on the website Less Wrong, you tell another story as well that perhaps was a key moment in your journey to this more Bayesian uh, way of uh, being rational. And that was a story about your best and worst mistake. Would you mind telling us that story? To put it in a nutshell, my best and worst mistake was thinking that intelligence was a big, complicated kludge with no simple principles behind it. The reason that it's my best mistake, as mistakes go, is that um, this belief that there were no simple answers caused me to go out and study neuroscience and cognitive psychology and various uh, AI and machine learning stuff and this whole big grab bag of information that was actually very useful to know. You know, as mistakes go, this mistake motivated me to go out and learn a whole lot of different things, which is certainly a very good sort of mistake to make if you do it from that perspective. Mm -hmm. But for other and even more complicated reasons that we may or may not end up getting into later in, in this particular interview, I 
later realized that AI work was going to have to meet a higher standard of precision than I'd been visualizing. And around the same time I came to that realization was when I was reading E.T. James's Probability Theory of the Logic of Science for the first time. And E.T. James really emphasized the point that if you did things the frequentist way, there are the various other non-Bayesian ways. Um, if you treated statistics as this big grab, grab bag of tools that you would throw at a problem, then you could compute uh, the same problem three different ways and come up with three different answers. But in probability theory, said James, it's, you know, probability theory is math. The results are theorems. You must never compute the same problem two different ways to derive at two different answers, for that would be a mathematical inconsistency. Mm-hmm. And this was sort of the moment at which I realized for the first time that there were rules. There were laws of thought. There were not simply various cool ways you could try to compute a problem. There was actually a correct way to do it. And the correct way might be computationally impossible, but, it, but even if you couldn't compute the correct answer, it didn't change the fact that there was a correct answer. Mm-hmm. There were rules. Intelligence was lawful, and what I'd seen as disorganization and chaos was actually just my own confusion and ignorance being projected out into the world. Now, you talked about how artificial intelligence, in trying to program that, you'd have to be very precise and that you'd have to compute the right answer by being very precise and following the correct rules. But you also talked about there being correct rules of thought. What do you mean by that? Well, if I get a test result, let's say I'm being tested for, uh, I don't know, low blood sugar or something, and I get back a little... um, like the little stick of paper showing red or something like that. And mm-hmm. that red is, is, is twice as likely to appear in the case of low blood sugar as a no blood sugar. Then the odds that I had um, low blood sugar have just doubled. That is, if it was previously uh, 1 to 2, it is now 1 to 4. If it was previously uh, th- 3 to 1 against, it is now 3 to 2 against, et cetera, et cetera. So... That's the exactly correct answer. Whenever you see a piece of evidence, there's a certain exact amount that that evidence should shift your beliefs. No more, no less. If you look at things in terms of traditional rationality, it's all phrased in terms of, are you allowed to believe this? Can you get away with believing that? Are you forced to believe this? It's all phrased qualitatively. And because of that qualitative phrasing, there's an awful lot of wiggle room and room for argument. And if you look at the, the underlying math that should theoretically be underlying, underlying all of this, it's precise. There, you know, in response to every iota of evidence or every iota of argument, things shift in a certain exact amount. And if you shift any more than that or any less than that, you're getting it wrong. And Eliezer, getting back to your story, how did you get from you know, studying about Bayes' theorem and understanding what Bayesian is to what you sometimes call Bayes' craft, which is kind of the highest level of rationality and very precise thinking. There are other things involved in there besides uh, Bayes' theorem. Well, I, I sort of think of that as being like sort of the human version. There'd be a higher version of that, which is write an AI. <laughs> okay. So I don't know if I'd call it the highest level. Okay. Um, but, it, but, it's, but it's the highest level I ever got to, that's for sure. So I guess it was just sort of obvious on an intuitive level in some sense. Like as soon as I saw Bayes' theorem, I was like, ooh, there's the fundamental equation of rationality. <laughs> it, it just immediately clicked for reason. Uh, And I guess that's because my own mathematical talent has always been sort of very heavily weighted toward the intuitive, the visualized, the understand what it means. I know someone and work with someone who is much more adept at manipulating proofs and theorems than I am. He can prove some things uh, sort of faster than than I can understand them. And I was, and I used to feel like very intimidated and unworthy until, you know, I realized that sometimes he would go through this lightning fast proof and I would look at his final result and say, that's wrong. And it wouldn't always be wrong, but it often would be wrong. Um, and that was when I realized that sort of different people have different math talents. So in my case, I just sort of looked at probability theory and 
because it happens to be my native math town, sort of understood very quickly what it meant, what it was saying to me. In terms of like sort of how did I how, how did I get here from there? Another sort of major episode was discovering the field of heuristics and biases. Mm-hmm. Um, I came across an online paper that was just sort of like very briefly in passing. Actually, it wasn't an online paper. It was an online PowerPoint presentation that just sort of very briefly in, in passing mentioned some of some of uh, Kahneman and Tversky results. So Kahneman and Tversky are the two founders of the field of heuristics and biases. Mm-hmm. And I was I was so shocked at what I was reading that I emailed the author to ask, is this a real result? Because it didn't come with any citations. It was just this, this presentation. So I emailed the, the author to say, is this a real result? And they said yes. And they uh, emailed me back um, the original Judgment Under Uncertainty paper from 1974. And then I sort of put, said, well, that looks interesting. I should learn about that eventually. Put it on hold. And a friend of mine named uh, Emil Gilliam eventually sort of like got me leaving that on hold and, and bought me the book to make sure I, I, would, I would read it, the, the Judgment Under Uncertainty edited volume of the book. And he probably like scored quite a number of points that way. <laughs> so I read through the edited volume and it was really fascinating. And it was the manual of, of known bugs in, in human reasoning, essentially, is what it was. Yeah. And I hadn't quite realized that, that, there was, that there was a whole field of science that was just all the known bugs in human reasoning. And could you give us one of your favorite examples of these bugs of human reasoning? Well, for example, Kahneman and Tversky went to the second international conference on forecasting in 1982. These were professional forecasters. Foretelling the future was their job. And they asked one group of forecasters about the probability of a complete breakdown of diplomatic relations between the United States and the Soviet Union sometime in 1983. Then they asked a separate group about the probability of a Soviet invasion of Poland, followed by a complete breakdown of diplomatic relations between the USA and the Soviet Union sometime in 1983. (laughs) And group two responded with higher probabilities. And the reason why this doesn't make sense is that in any case where Russia invades Poland and diplomatic relations breaks down is necessarily a case where diplomatic relations breaks down. You cannot assign higher probability to the compound event A and B than the single event A, whether or not B happened. Right. But that was what these forecasters did. There's a number of sort of ways of looking at the reason why they did this, but the sort of the most important way to think to realize about that is that adding more details onto a prediction automatically makes that prediction less probable by the laws of probability theory but it also makes it, can also make it sound more plausible to human beings. Mm-hmm. So what this is telling you about is something of the probability theory underlying Occam's razor and the human psychology that causes us not to implement Occam's razor. When you see someone believing these enormous, complicated stories with no evidence behind them, it can really help to, to understand this, to come to terms with this horrifying reality of, of, of human madness, to have studied some of the cognitive psychology by which you understand how and why, oh, well, sure, as they make the story more and more complicated, it becomes less and less probable and sounds more and more plausible. Yeah, that whole field of cognitive heuristics is absolutely fascinating, and we're still getting new results every year. One of the things, Eliezer, that you write about on Less Wrong is this series on making beliefs pay rent. Could you explain what does that mean? To give a, a negative example, this, this is how it should not work. A, a negative example would be you go into your English class and the English professor tells you that Mildred Miram is a post-utopian. And the, you ask the English professor, well, how do you know she's a post-utopian? And he says, well, her works exhibit coloni- colonial alienation. Uh, well, what, what is colonial alienation? Well, it's what post-utopians exhibit. <laughs> and it seems like you have these beliefs that are connected to other beliefs, and that this, this notion of her being post-utopian is actually yielding this successful prediction that her work should exhibit colonial alienation, and yet your belief network actually has this little collection, collection of nodes that are connected only to each other and never interact with sensory experience at all. On the other hand, if I believe that gravity um, pulls downward at 9.8 meters per second per second, 
And I believe that a certain building that I'm on is, say, uh, 125 meters high. By having the sort of abstract belief about this is how much gravity is, and this building is 120 meters tall, you can get from there to the anticipation of sensory experience. That if I drop this bowling ball off the tower, uh, the bowling ball is going to crash into the ground five seconds later. Or to be even more precise, if I saw the clock second hand on the one numeral when I dropped the ball, the uh, hand will be on the two numeral five seconds later when I hear the crash. And then you've taken your sort of abstract beliefs with words like 9.8 meters per second per second and concepts like acceleration and the even integral calculus. And building is 100, around 120 meters tall. The belief that a building is 120 meters tall is a directly a sensory experience. But, but by connecting your beliefs together, you can get to, directly to what I anticipate happening next. Or another example, like let's say uh, someone tells you that they have a dragon in their garage and you say, okay, let's go look at the dragon. They say, it's an invisible dragon. You say, okay, let's go and listen to the dragon. They say, it's an inaudible dragon. You say, well, I'd like to toss a bag of flour in the air and see if the dragon's invisible form is outlined within the flower. They say, well, the dragon is permeable to flour. <laughs> now, when Carl Sagan originally told this story, um, he was telling it to say, if your beliefs have no effect on the real world, then you're allowed to have them, but please keep them out of my politics. Or you could tell the story to emphasize the idea that false hypotheses need to do sort of fast footwork and complicate themselves to avoid falsification. But when I tell that story, I tell it with the moral that this person who says they have a dragon in their garage clearly has a good model of the world hidden somewhere in their brain because they can anticipate in advance exactly which experiences they'll need to come up with excuses for. They know in advance that when you look in the garage, you're not going to see a dragon there. And the moral I take from that is don't ask what facts do I believe, ask what experiences do I anticipate. Yeah, and so making beliefs pay rent is to say, you know, look at your beliefs and make sure that they actually give you some anticipated experiences, because if they don't, then maybe they're just kind of free-hanging and only connected to other certain beliefs and not actually connected to anything you could ever experience. Or for that matter, maybe they're carefully set up to give exactly the same answers. You know, maybe they are surrounded by sort of protective layer of excuses which prevents them from making any predictions, which is an even worse sign in a way. Yeah, I think the making beliefs pay rent is a good image for this idea that, you know, your beliefs should render predictions, because uh, otherwise, what, what do your beliefs really mean? Do you really even believe it if it doesn't, if it wouldn't change your anticipated experiences at all? Well, the problem is people can and do believe it it is perfectly possible to have a collection of nodes in your head that doesn't link to sensory experiences, that doesn't link to reality, where you can't set up a truth condition of saying, how would the quarks in the universe have to be configured for Mildred, Mildred Miram to be a post-utopian or not? You know, it's clear what configuration of quarks makes a building, makes the statement, this building is 120 meters t tall, true or alternatively false. You know, some collections of quarks will make that statement true, others will make it false. Um, if the statement Mildred Mirren is a post-utopian doesn't the sensory experience in any way, it's not going to be conjugate to any collection of quarks or any collection of causes and effects. It's not going to have a truth condition. It's not going to be meaningful. But nonetheless, if you don't answer that way test, the professor will mark you down. And if you published a few papers about that and become famous for them, you might be very passionate about this belief, even though it's sort of an abuse of your brain's belief representation to contain content that, that doesn't mean anything or correspond to anything. It's a part of the map for which there is no territory, you know, not just that the territory doesn't match the map, but that this is a section of the map which does not match any territory and could not match any territory, no matter how the territory looks. And the map and the territory is this analogy you use where you've, you're trying to 
come up with as true a model of the world as you can so that the map in your head matches up to the territory and reality and when you allow yourself to have these points on the map that don't actually control your anticipated experiences then those points on the map might just not ever connect to anything in the territory right and and not just not just that they're false but that they might not mean anything there might not be any way the world could be that would make them true or false so this is one of the tools that you write about to improve our rationality and improve our ability to make our mental maps match the territory and the world outside. Another tool that you provide is this warning against giving mysterious answers to mysterious questions. What does that look like? If you rewind really far back to the days of the ancient Greeks, then wouldn't it have been interesting to look at yourself in some half-polished mirror and just have no idea what you were looking at? You know, you're made out of stuff that moves and that corresponds to your will. Well, why, why does your hand move when you want it to move, whereas a piece of clay that you make it into the shape of a hand doesn't move at all? So right up even until the, the 19th century even, uh, it was thought that there was this sort of animating spirit, Elan Vital. You know, Elan Vital was not a term invented by the ancient Greeks, but I'm not even sure that they had sort of a notion that that refined yet. But by the time you got to the 19th century, this sort of confusion, why, do, why, does, flesh obey, why does my flesh obey my orders and not clay? Well, it was thought that there was a sort of animating spirit running through the flesh, and that distinguished the flesh from, from the clay. It was the stuff of life mm-hmm. that was responsible for the obvious difference in kind between animate matter and inanimate matter. Many people still believe in this, of course. They don't quite call it by that name, but one way or another, they believe it. But the thing about saying that, that what is responsible for life is Elan Vital, even after you say it, you can't make any new predictions. So that's the first thing to notice. After you say it, it, it doesn't act as an anticipation controller. It acts, it acts as a curiosity stopper. You say, why? And the answer is, Elan Vital, and then you're supposed to stop thinking. The notion of Elan Vital didn't have any moving parts inside. There wasn't a complex mechanism that was supposed to explain life. It was just supposed to be a sort of simple fluid, a simple substance that was responsible for it. You, mm-hmm. It was a black box, and you weren't supposed to open up the black box and look inside. That's the second attribute of mysterious answers to mysterious questions. Right, and so it's a mysterious answer to a mysterious question. We, we haven't made it anywhere. This is something I got out of E.T. E. James. If I'm ignorant about a phenomenon, that is a fact about my state of mind, not a fact about the phenomenon itself. And Juan Vital sort of took all the ignorance that people had of how life worked and sort of made it into a substance in the outside world. Ilan Vital is a, an example of a mysterious answer to a mysterious question. What are some other ones that are more recent and more common today? Well, the third sign of a mysterious answer is that the people who offer the mysterious answer are sort of proud of their ignorance. They speak very proudly of how the phenomenon defeats ordinary science or is unlike merely mundane phenomena. They, they put their ignorance into a separate magisterium and, and, and make it holy. And that's why even after the mysterious answer is given, the phenomenon is still a mystery and still possesses the same quality of wonderful inexplicability that it had at the start. So a modern example of something like that would be, I would hold, emergence. Suppose I were to tell you that intelligence is an emergent phenomenon within the brain. And if I told you intelligence is a magical phenomenon within the brain, or if I simply told you intelligence is a phenomenon within the brain. So I just like substituted the word magic for emergence, or I just deleted the word entirely, you'd make exactly the same predictions either way. Well, and a very, a very common one, of course, is God as a mysterious answer to a mysterious question, depending on how it's put forward. That one's almost too easy, even. I, I actually do think that the God hypothesis is meaningful and false, I, I mean, if you tell it to a kid, they have a pretty good idea of what you mean by God. They are able to make experimental predictions about what God would be expected to do, and those predictions don't come true. 
Now, adults sort of have like elaborate excuses to, to guard the, the hypothesis from falsification, but children know perfectly well what it means, and the hypothesis is meaningful and wrong. So, Eliezer, r- related to all of this is the concept of reductionism. Could you explain what that is? There's, of course, sort of Hollywood reductionism, which is believing that since atoms are uninteresting and the universe is made of atoms, the universe is uninteresting QED. So that's Hollywood reductionism. (laughs) What does reductionism mean if you actually have some idea of what you're talking about? (laughs) So I once met a fellow um, who'd been a Navy gunner, and this fellow was under the impression that things which move slowly were governed by Newtonian mechanics, and things that moved at at high rates of speed were governed by special relativity and general relativity. (laughs) And I attempted to explain to this person, no, everything in the universe is governed by special relativity and general relativity at all times, in all places. And he was like, no, for low velocity things, that'll give you the wrong answer. And I was like, no, it will give you the exactly correct answer. It might take too long to calculate, so you might want to quickly get a Newtonian answer. But but no, he thought that there were actually sort of different laws that governed at different speeds. So he didn't really understand the notion of, the, of a universe that was governed by unified physical laws. So the universe is a single, low-level, unified mathematical process, and that something like Newtonian mechanics was an approximation that would quickly give you an answer that was almost right, but in its details wrong. This is sort of a, a run-up to the concept of reductionism. So let's say you look at a, an engineer's model of a 747. That engineer's model of a 747 is not going to talk about quarks. It'll talk about wings and it will, will airflow and it will model the air as a fluid, but it will not, there, will, there will not be elements in the computer program modeling the 747 that correspond to individual quarks. And the idea behind reductionism is that our multi-level map of the universe corresponds to a single-level territory. So we have different beliefs about objects of different scales. We have different beliefs about quarks, about molecules, about cells, about tissues, about people, about societies. We, We learn different rules pertaining to each of these things, and we learn rules about how to translate our knowledge at one level into our knowledge at another level. But this multi-level map, there isn't in the world out there separate levels. In the world out there, there isn't the, there's a 747 that is incarnate in the quarks. And the fact that the 747 has wings is a high-level map. It's a a high-level fact in a multi-level map, a multi-level model that we have with the 747, but in the laws of physics themselves, they're just quarks and the interactions between them. Now, the notion that the 747 has wings is meaningful. It has a truth condition. There is something about the 747 that makes the belief that it has wings true or alternatively false. There are some configurations of quarks that makes that true. There are some configurations of quarks that makes that false. If I say... I'm angry at you, or I'm fond of you, my friend, then there are ways that I, as a collection of quarks, can be that will make these facts true or alternatively false. So everything that we talk about at the higher levels is still meaningful. It still has truth conditions. But this does not change the fact the universe itself is a single, mathematically unified, low-level process governed by universal, exceptionless physical laws, as best as anyone can determine. The person who doesn't believe that, uh, maybe a dualist or something like that, uh, would say, well, Eliezer, how do you know that it that it's quarks all the way down? How do you know that? It's a simple hypothesis extensively supported by the evidence. And first, there's a question as to whether, um, quote, non-reductionist, unquote, hypotheses are even properly meaningful? Like, what would it mean to live in a universe where the fact that the 747 had wings was a separate fact apart from its quarks? Like, what would that universe look like that would make non-reductionism true? Is non-reductionism a coherent theory, or is it just a sort of logical confusion? And the other aspect is, 
Well, we went out and looked at the universe, and we found that it was a single low-level physical process, as best as anyone could ever see by anything that you know, actually showed up in replicated experiments. And there were a lot of people trying to say things that didn't fit with this picture because to a human, the idea of a rule with literally no exceptions, you know, it sort of doesn't sound right. Like you might have a rule about dividing up up the meat fairly that you took in the hunt, but if you put a gun to everyone's head and said, this one time, don't uh, divide up the meat fairly or we'll shoot everyone in the tribe, they would make Mm -hmm. an exception to the rule just that once. Mm -hmm. So the idea of a universe with universal exceptionless laws is something that belongs to the language of math more than the language that humans would, would tend to naturally speak in. People are always inventing exceptions to the laws. And science is always shooting down those proposed exceptions. And the the fact that this happens over again, at some point you sort of pick up the hint. You realize what it is that universe is trying to tell you here, anthropomorphically speaking. You, you realize that after the last 300 exceptions got shot down, that the 301st exception is probably, once again, humans just not getting with the concept of universal law. Yeah, so that's what you would say about proposed exceptions today, like consciousness, where people say the intrinsic uh, subjectivity of consciousness is just, I just can't imagine how that could be reduced to quarks or turn out to be just a particular configuration of quarks. And you're going to say, well, you said that about, you know, or we said that about 5,000 other things before, and all of those have been shot down and turned out to be just quarks. Uh, Is that right? The problem is that people aren't immortal. They didn't actually live through it. You know, they, they learn about astronomy and chemistry and biology in school, and it seems to them that these have always been the proper meat of science. You know, they never were part of the separate magisterium. They never were revered. They never were sacred. They never were mysterious. You know, so people who are going off and doing astrology or people who believed in vitalism, well, they must have just been stupid because they took something that is self-evidently non-mysterious in the domain of science, like biology, and then they tried to make a big deal out of it. And then they, but, you know, consciousness, no consciousness, that really is mysterious. Then they'll say something like, well, it's been mysterious for centuries. And that, of course, is exactly what they would have said about life in the 19th century. Everything is a mystery right from the dawn of uh, human experience right up until someone solves it. Yeah. So I, I think that, that uh, people like that are just sort of not taking quite the lessons from history that they would have taken if they lived through it themselves. And I say this as someone who used to believe that consciousness was mysterious. And, and once I actually sort of like started to realize that it wasn't going to be like that, that was when I woke up and said, I can't believe I did that again. Like, didn't I learn anything from my history book? And that was when I... That was when I realized, you know, not just the general form of the lesson, but also like, wow, you know, like those people weren't stupid or at least they or at least um, or how do I put it? At least I wasn't any smarter than they were. (laughs) We all have these human brains. The great shock that, that happens over and over again is that something seems really amazingly, impenetrably mysterious, like no one could ever manage to explain that. And then they explain it anyway. <laughs> it keeps happening. Uh, the universe is trying to tell us something. Well, no, it's not. <laughs> the universe does not actually have any will or spirit with which to want to tell us things. All right. But we might want to learn from it. <laughs> Maybe. Um, so, Eliezer, you work in artificial intelligence, and a particular area of artificial intelligence called Friendly AI. Could you explain real briefly what the need for that is and what type of work you're doing? Okay. To make a very long story very short, (laughs) about 50 to 100,000 years ago, maybe, human beings evolved a new bit of software that actually made the human beings in the first place. No one quite knows what the last layer of icing on the chimpanzee cake was exactly, but we woke up and a few tens of thousands of years later, we even invented writing 
and then we invented science, and a few and a few centuries after that, we invented computers. And the moral of the story is, intelligence is powerful. People say things like intelligence is no match for a gun, like like guns had grown on trees, or you know you say you 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 try to explain to them that an AI having smarter than human intelligence might be uh, a bit of a, a big thing. And they'll say something like, well, but what if the AI doesn't have any money? Like you, like humans <laughs> had gotten money from the trees and, you know, had just sort of found supermarkets already constructed there in the savannah. Pe- people just sort of have the stereotype of intelligence as this useless thing that professors have um, without quite realizing that this is why they are not trying to gather nuts and roots in order to make it through the day. Mm-hmm. I.J. Good pointed out that if you have a sufficiently smart AI, it can do that thing humans do where they try to build AIs, and it can potentially make itself smarter. And then having made itself smarter, it might be able to make itself even smarter. And if you got to, if the AI got to the point where each self improvement on average triggered more than one self improvement of figure of a similar magnitude on average, if it's metaphorical effective neutron multiplication factor, which is, which was what you used to describe um, nuclear criticality, uh, went over one, then you would get what IJ Good termed an intelligent explosion, leading to what IJ Good termed ultra intelligent machines. At this point, people sort of start asking, well, what would a superintelligent AI want? And this is the wrong question, because humans come from the factory with a number of sort of built-in drives mm-hmm. and also a built-in capacity to pick up a, a morality from their environment and upbringing, which nonetheless sort of has to match up with the built-in drives or, or won't be acquired uh, the same way that we have a language acquisition capacity that doesn't work on arbitrary grammars, but only a certain sort of human built-in um, sy- syntax. So that sort of corresponds to our experience. And so we expect all minds, because of all minds that we've had the experience with, we expect them all to, you know, sort of, on the one hand, have a certain amount of innate selfishness as a drive, self-concern as a drive, um, and yet to respond um, positively to positive gestures. So they're thinking, well, you know, we'll build AIs and the AIs will, of course, you know, want some resources from for themselves, but if we're nice to them, they'll probably be nice to us. And on the other hand, if we're cruel to them and we try to enslave them, then they'll resent that and they'll feel rebellious and they'll try to break free. And if you think I'm, I'm making all this up, I suggest watching like the prequel to the Matrix movies or just like reading any bad science fiction ever about AIs. <laughs> Those are remarkably human, homo sapien-related AIs. They are human. You know, these are, these are script writers who do, who do not comprehend the concept of anthropomorphism, so they just write the AIs as if they're any other character, meaning any other human character. But all human minds are sort of a single dot within the space of possible, all possible mind designs. Now, you imagine this gigantic sphere larger than the Dyson sphere, maybe, but of course you can't visualize that. So just imagine this huge sphere stretching far off into the night sky, and, and that's the space of possible mind designs. Then imagine a tiny little dot-sized period where, where you can't see it, but it's really small, and that's where all the humans are in mind design space. Yeah. But since you know we don't usually spend a whole lot of time talking with squirrels, we think that that's the whole, that, that little tiny dot is the whole space. Yeah, and I would imagine even, you know, if we take animal minds on Earth, um, that's a larger dot in mind design space than humans, but it's probably still very small in the the space of all possible mind designs. Right, because it's mostly the mammalian lineage that has really complicated mind designs at all, and natural selection is is sort of very tightly constrained in what sort of designs it manufactures. Uh, For example, the wheel the freely rotating wheel has been invented a grand total of three times by, by natural selection that is known to us over the history of Earth. Because a freely rotating wheel is a very hard thing to evolve incrementally. The biologist Cynthia McKenyon once said, a, a gravity can do things in an hour that natural selection could not do in a million years. Mm-hmm. Because you can, you can 
So you can um, just sort of use your abstract intelligence to make multiple changes that work together simultaneously and just jump right through the search space in a way that natural selection can't manage. I, I think there's this notion that creationists are bad, which is true. People who um, <laughs> believe in natural selection are the good guys, which is also true. And that therefore, if you say good things about natural selection and praise how amazingly effective it is, you are also a good guy and I'm the side of science, which is false. You know, if you actually read scientific literature on evolutionary biology, it tends to be you know, sort of heavily guarded with warnings not to anthropomorphize natural selection evolution and not to think that it would do the same sort of thing you would do in its shoes. Mm -hmm. Now remember, the amazing thing about natural selection is not how well it works, but that it works at all without a brain. You know, this, mm -hmm. this is a very counterintuitive idea that you can actually get complicated designs without there being any brain to design them. It doesn't mean that doing it without a brain is actually better. <laughs> you know, that, that, is, that is false praise. You know, and remember, mm -hmm. it, it's not that you're, you, you get bonus points for saying that because you're on the side of evolution or biology. You are merely, you know, contradicting uh, modern science's understanding of evolutionary biology and making mistakes. You know, that thing a computer programmer does where they sit down for an hour and generate a new piece of code, you know, containing hundreds of interdependent parts. Natural selection does not work that quickly because it does not have a brain. Now, the amazing thing is not how well it works, but that it works at all. And the, the analogy I sometimes use to explain the human brain is that it's sort of like the first replicator. Now, the first replicator ever to exist, the, the one that just sort of popped into existence by accident in some tidal pool. Now, it's counterintuitive that you can have an accidental replicator at all. That first replicator, the one that, that happened by accident, and that, what, that, that replicator that wasn't produced by natural selection, it sort of had to happen to get natural selection started at all, but at the same time, it probably wasn't a very good replicator. You know, it would be in, eaten in an instant by a modern bacteria. She talked about what a wonderful replicator that first replicator might have been in order to sort of praise and score more points against the, the people who deny that you can get an accidental replicator, the creationists who deny that you can get an accidental replicator. You'd be totally missing that that, that what made this first replicator um, so wonderful was not how well it replicated, but that it could happen at all by accident. It's the same way with the human brain. You know, by, by relation to the, the whole future stretching out ahead of us, it's probably going to be one of the strangest intelligent brains ever to exist because it was produced entirely by natural selection and not at all by intelligent design. Now, you do need some brains like that back in the dawn of time in order to get the recursive self-improvement minds, manufacturing minds process started. But if you were to talk about that brain as if it was some kind of super amazing, incredible thinker, you'd be entirely missing the point. The human brain is the lowest level of intelligence that suffices to build computer chips. Mm -hmm. And if lower level of intelligence we could have and still build computer chips, we'd be having this conversation at that level of intelligence instead. Hmm. We're, we're literally as dumb as you can get and, and still you know, build AIs, given that we actually can build AIs, which I do think we can, but which hasn't quite been determined yet. So that's sort of the background concept of the intelligence explosion um, which is mm -hmm. one of the things, one of the many things that people actually mean when they say singularity. Mm -hmm. But I do prefer to use the word intelligence explosion because it is more precise and, and actually means something, unlike the, what the, the sad thing that has happened to the word singularity, which has now been used to mean all sorts of different things. It is no longer a precise term. Yeah. Yeah. And so you explained how there are all these different possible ways that a mind could be designed. How does that fit into your work on friendly AI? Because the question isn't what will superintelligent AIs want. The question is, you know, there are, there are different kinds of possible superintelligent AIs, and they want different things depending on how their goal systems, their preferences are written. And the sufficiently intelligent agents will preserve their utility function in writing themselves or their distant parts or successors or whatever you want to call it. 
you know, as they are absorbing more material and transforming it into more rational agent, will transform it into more rational agent with the same preferences. For example, uh, Gandhi doesn't want to kill people. You offer Gandhi a pill that makes him want to kill If Gandhi actually knows that this is what the pill does, Gandhi will refuse the pill because if he takes the pill, he will kill people and Gandhi doesn't want people to die. Mm-hmm. So that's the sort of brief gloss of the argue, of the heuristic, non-technical, intuitive argument for most sufficiently intelligent, rational agents that to, to precisely comprehend the effective changes to their own source code will deliberately um, change their source code in a way that alters their utility function or whatever preferences that they, they have. I would like to be able to make that argument precise. I would like to be able to design an AI and know that that AI was going to modify in itself in such fashion as to preserve the, the utility function as originally written. I don't know how to do that. No one knows how to do that as far as I know. It is, even if you give me infinite computing power, I cannot give you any formal specification. I cannot give you any mathematical insight into how to um, have an AI self-modify, including the part of self-modifying the part of itself that does the self-modification at all, because our, all the decision theory tools we have for that will go into an infinite loop and explode at the point where it talks about the AI modifying the part of itself that does self-modifying. So in order to have humanity's future life cone be what we would regard as worthwhile, it is probably necessary to solve this problem. And that is what the Singularity Institute is set up to do. And in particular, my sort of mid-range, long-term job description is to come up with a reflective decision theory that does not go into an infinite loop and explode when it talks about modifying itself. And that will be able to make um, to give it formal mathematical insight into the notion of self-modifying in a way that preserves the preferences slash utility function, et cetera. Yeah. And so the worry is that if there are all these different types of possible minds that could arise as different people are trying to design artificial intelligences, um, there are a huge number of them that would end up being really destructive. Uh, or even malicious toward the things that we care about. Uh, and so it's sort of a race to develop a self-improving artificial intelligence that will make the world a better place instead of uh, destroying everything that's valuable. Is that kind of the picture of how you would paint the, the future in some of these important uh, efforts? Pretty much. People sort of automatically map the, map the AIs they're imagining onto humans. They take humans as their point of departure. They imagine AIs as though they're modified humans. And because of this, they tend to think that it is much easier to get human-ish values, moral-ish AIs, AIs that we can coexist with. They imagine that it's much easier to get to a future that we regard as, as worthwhile, whereas after you spend a few years investigating the issue, or depending on how fast you are on the uptake, possibly less than that, you realize that human values are very complicated, don't happen by chance, they don't happen in generic minds, they're not built into the the basics of rational agents. And if you get even a small distance away from this very complex information making up human value, the worthwhileness from, of, of the universe drops off very rapidly past that point. Uh, for example, boredom. If you look at the national agent formalisms, there is a concept analogous to exploration, curiosity, and it's called the exploitation-exploration trade-off. Now, the way humans do it is, you know, we, we, we get curious, we explore. You know, just sort of innate drives for all these things. But that's sort of like the way natural selection stumbled across it. You look at the pure math, it says, you know, figure out how much resources you want to spend on exploring, do a bunch of exploring, use all your remaining resources on, on exploiting the most valuable thing you've discovered over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. So if you lost the human notion of boredom and curiosity, 
but you preserved all the rest of, of human values, then it would be sort of like imagine the AI that has everything but boredom goes out to the stars, takes apart the stars for raw materials, and it builds whole civilizations full of minds experiencing the most exciting thing ever over and over and over and over and over again. The whole universe is just tiled with that. And that single moment is something that we would find is sort of very worthwhile and exciting to happen once, but it lost the single aspect of value that we would name boredom and went to, instead to, you know, sort of the more pure math of exploration, exploitation, where you spend just some initial resources finding the best possible moment to live, and then you devote the rest of your resources to exploiting that one moment over and over again. And so you lose a single dimension, and the degree to which the universe is, is an interesting and worthwhile place, and, and the whole human journey was worth it, from our perspective, drops off very rapidly. This is uh, what, I, what I call the fragility of value thesis. It is counterintuitive. Your, your brain comes up with all sorts of clever ways to argue to the AI that it ought to do what you want the AI to do, because that is what the human brain is programmed to do. It's programmed to come up with political rationalizations for doing things your way, as argued to people who started from other goals. But the AI is not motivated to argue the same way that you are motivated to argue to the AI. And so if you come up with a clever argument for, you know, why fully general Bayesian decision processes should do boredom the human way instead of the exploration, exploitation trade-off way that you can find in artificial intelligence textbooks. It's probably not going to work on a arbitrary AI. Now, you can build the AI to value things the human way, but that would be like a special AI within the space of all possible mind designs. You know, most of them by default, unless they are specially configured, are going to be doing exploitation, exploration, the way it's in AI textbooks. So that's sort of the, the problem that you have to hit a very narrow target in mind design space in order to end up with a worthwhile future. And if you miss that target by even a little, the worthwhileness of the universe from our perspective drops off very rapidly. And by our perspective, I don't mean, you know, like, oh, well, there, you know, the universe is full of strange and wondrous interactions between all sorts of mysterious different AIs that we couldn't grasp in their um, mysterious, ineffable civilization. Uh, but you, 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 you mirror human, you didn't comprehend it. No, I don't mean that. I, I mean, like, you, you, you lost boredom and, 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 and they're all exploiting the same, the same experience over and over and over again. That's what, that's what I mean. It, it, it gets uninteresting is the problem. You have to hit a very narrow point in the design space in order to not end up with all the galaxies being turned into paper clips or little tiny counters showing very high values of pleasure or, you know, something exploiting the same high utility configuration over and over and over again. It, it is hard to get a worthwhile galaxy, and it requires solving some rather difficult AI problems. So we have a lot of things that we think are important and that we worry about, like global warming and uh, how to feed the poor and how to get peace in the Middle East and how to cure certain diseases. How important do you think this problem of friendly artificial intelligence is in the big picture. The problem of friendly artificial intelligence is the big picture. That is the question of, of what happens to hundreds of millions of galaxies over the next billions of years. Global warming is not the big picture. But if I can be a bit more abstract, there is a concept of marginal return on investment. And there's going to be some optimal balance of investments for the human species at this point in its history. Now, if we were talking about 2,500 years ago, would it be rational for humanity at that time to try to directly invest all of its resources on doing AI theory and to do no farming? No, because we would have starved. Right now, however, we are getting a bit close to... The expected time when, you know, AI, the creation of AI is already plausible. Someone could be working on it in some, you know, basement that, we, that I don't know about. It's already plausible. It's going to get more and more probable over time. And because it's hard to see what would make it any less probable over time, would be quite 
surprised to hear that 100 years later, AI had still not been invented. And indeed, I would be a bit, a bit surprised uh, in the sense of you know having my expectations violated to hear that AI had not, still not been invented 50 years from now. So there is going to be some marginal balance of investments for the human species, which it, if we were smart, if we were sane, we were doing what a species ought to do, you know, we, we, we would not be putting all of our effort into direct research on friendly AI and zero effort into farming. But nonetheless, the current situation where humanity is spending more on marketing lipstick in New York than on ensuring the future of the next several billion years and hundred million galaxies, not to, not, not to mention for those with more selfish and short-sighted vision, their own survival in the next few decades. The, the tiny fraction of resources that we are currently spending on this problem is not defensible. It is insane. And philanthropy has always been insane. You know, there is no efficient market in philanthropy. There is no efficient market in expected utilons. You, you, you know, even within a, a, a certain class of charitable uh, intervention, like um, trying to save lives in Africa, you will find charities that are 1,000 times as efficient as other charities. Can you imagine you know, tr- having a stock that predictably delivered 1,000 times the return of other stocks? This would not happen <laughs> in an efficient market. And that is because people care about money in a way that they do not quite care about maximizing the return on marginal investment and expected utilons when they do philanthropy. So you can look at the the resource balance, you know, how much we're currently invested in global warming, how much we're currently investing in marketing lipstick in New York, and how much we're currently investing in trying to solve the friendly AI problem. It is very clear that the next marginal philanthropic investments should be going into friendly AI. You know, we are rationalists over there. We are not doing this because we wandered into it at random. We're doing this because there has to be one cause in the world that has the single highest marginal return on investment in expected utilon. And friendly AI is it. And if it were that it were not it, we would be off doing something else. Right now, this is where the maximum marginal return on investment is. So donate to the Singularity Institute. Right. Or, or whatever, whatever fraction of, of your money you want to spend on maximizing marginal return on expected utilons, Send that to the Singularity Institute. Well, Eliezer, one last question. I know you've been talking about writing a book for quite a while, and a lot of people will be curious to know how that's coming along. So I'm about finished with the first draft. The book seems to have split into two books. One is called How to Actually Change Your Mind, and it's about all the biases that stop us from changing our minds and all these sort of little mental skills that we invent in ourselves to prevent ourselves from changing our minds and the the counter skills that you need in order to defeat this self-defeating tendency and manage to actually change your mind. Hmm. It may not sound like an important problem, but if you consider that people who win Nobel Prizes typically do so for managing to change their minds only once, and then many of them go on to be negatively famous for being unable to change their minds again, you can see that the vision of people being able to change their minds on a routine basis, like once a week or something, is actually the sort of terrifying utopian vision that I'm I'm sure this book will not actually bring to pass, but it may nonetheless manage to decrease some of the sand in the gears of thought. Well, it sounds excellent to me. And what's the second book that this has become? That's all the basics of rationality that ought to be taught in grade school and are actually just sort of taught piecemeal in in various postgraduate courses. You know, like, what is truth? What is evidence? Probability is in the mind. What does it mean to say that a hypothesis is simple? How do you do induction, reductionism? You know, what does it mean to be in a universe where complex things are made simple parts, just sort of covering all the basics, really. Yeah, that sounds great, too. I hope I get to see them sometime soon. Eliezer, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So that's it for now. Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot will be off the air for a few months, but I shall return. <laughs>